You're listening to 3CR Radio. And soundtrack the gentleman reg band there with it's not safe you're listening to in your face on 3cr with james on today's show we chat with advocate for safe spaces virginia diverse students and teachers rick spencer 
and Spiro Economopoulos from the Melbourne Queer Film Festival joins us. 3CR Well, Rick Spencer is a non-binary person and teacher who advocates for safe spaces and best practices for gender diverse students and teachers. And Rick begins that interview by discussing their personal journey and how it led them to the welfare and education sectors. Oh, gosh. Well, I guess it sort of started back in the 80s um, when I sort of came out, and this was back 1987, 88. And at that stage, I sort of, obviously, I knew I was gay. Um, I was very effeminate as a child growing up, always been, you know, the usual in that period of time, teased, uh, looked a certain way. Um, so I never really was able to identify with this stereotype of a male, you know, that heterosexual sort of male. So I ran away from home. <laughs> One day I packed the garbage bag of clothes So I lived in a suburb called Ardia in Sunshine and the Western Suburbs, and I ran away <laughs> and went to live with an older man that I had met um, through the ads. In those days, there were no online dating apps or that. It was all pen pals. <laughs> so it was my way to kind of leave the world behind me and begin a new journey. And so through the years, I kind of tried to fill my place in the world. I went to Deakin University and commenced a degree in sociology and psychology. And that kind of started my journey of really thinking about my place in the world. You know, what does it mean to be a queer person? And at that stage, there was no word for queer in the late 80s. It was still homosexual or gay. So it was really hard, and I and I kind of really even didn't know myself what I was because I know I always felt uh, different inside in terms of feeling like um, a woman. But on my outside, I thought, well, I must be gay because growing up there was never any spaces on TV that talked about transgender or non-binary. It was just mainly, you know, you had your um, Dame Edna as your kind of token uh, cross-dressing uh, person. Um, so I, I didn't relate to that character and I didn't know, didn't have a understanding of who I was. So once I started looking at uh, ideas at uni, at uni, I kind of started to explore and accept my uh, space of being, you know, a queer person. But this was complicated because I lived in the time of AIDS. Mm -hmm. So coming out to uh, my family was quite traumatic because as soon as I mentioned the uh, gay word, they associated me with um, with AIDS. And, you know, I wasn't allowed to drink at, or eat at their place. You know, I had to bring my own cups. So it was quite a traumatic time in the early 90s. So obviously I gravitated towards um, the gay scene of Melbourne and as well as doing my studies and had a few uh, relationships here and there. But again, I struggled again with my identity because the way I felt inside, I just couldn't relate to other people. And um, it wasn't until later in my life that... Um, I finally woke up one day, and that was when I turned 50, and thought, oh, my God, I am a woman. I'm just not in this body. 
uh, I'm in a man's body, but I am a woman. I feel like a woman, and everything kind of started to make sense to me. But sorry, going compound jumbling up and down. But prior to that, you know, I'd worked after I did my psychology, uh, my sociology and psychology degree. I went to work for a number of different agencies, and one was Centrelink, uh, where I worked for about eight years. And that kind of really changed my life too because I ended up seeing what the hell marginalisation looks like in practice. And it really infuriated me the way things worked. And I thought, oh, I can't deal with this. And I remember an experience working there, and this was sort of going late 90s, where there were certain people who refused to work with me. And they said to the team leader, I'm not working with him. And they even refused to stand next to me because they felt they would catch something. So this is the mentality of workspaces that I grew up in and I, you know, had been exposed to. And I guess all these things sort of started to shape my own kind of sense of who I am and what sort of things have to be changed. So working in that sort of field, social work field, and I worked for a number of uh, not-for-profit organisations, youth at-risk programs, And I began to see a kind of trend that was developing where young people um, who were kind of could sort of connect with me because of the way I spoke and the way I looked were telling me their stories about growing up. Um, And and I worked in a service centre that was in the western suburbs in Sunshine. And there were quite a few queer young kids coming through the system and saying how you know, the things that they were going through in schools, and I could relate that nothing has changed since I was at school. And, of course, that got me really angry because I discovered that it's within these school spaces that we really need to make changes. And unless we do that, um, nothing's going to change because all we were creating were marginalised queer kids coming out of a school system who then needed a lot of mental health to link them back to wellness and to find their identity. And I just thought, this is wrong. 3CR. You're listening to an interview with Safe Spaces in Schools advocate Rick Spencer on 3CR's In Your Face. So later, and I think in my mid-40s, I decided to go back to uni and retrain, and I did a Bachelor of Education at uh, Victoria University. And it really allowed me to kind of see what it's like in schoolroom classes, you know, at this time as a later, as an older person. And through that journey, I started to keep a logbook of my experiences because I thought, you know what, something's not right here and some things aren't changing, (laughs) nothing's really changed. And some of the things I noticed was that the way the staff rooms were set up, it was very still much the heteronormative way of looking at the world where you had the men teachers would sit together and the girl teachers would sit together. And I noticed that, you know, I was invisible. And once I was introduced to people as a pre-service teacher, in all my placements, I would always get a look and the look of silence sort of said it all that, um, you know, I don't know you or I don't really like you, what your space represents. And that really got to my core because I thought, okay, 
So they're judging me on my appearance. They're judging me on myself. And they're not seeing what I can be, which I think, you know, I really wanted to be a good teacher. So after I completed my all my placements, um, I began that journey of, you know, I did really, really well in my course. Uh, and I thought, great, you know, and I went for a lot of, you know, I looked good on paper. But I noticed that as soon as I had, I think, about 20 interviews in different schools, and as, and I thought, what is wrong? And I thought, is it my weight? Because I'm a, big, a bit of a bigger person. And I thought, oh, maybe it's just that I'm shy or I never realised that it was probably because I did not fit that heteronormative view, binary representation of male. And there was no way that the school management was going to ever allow someone like me to become a permanent staff member. So luckily enough or unlucky enough, I ended up joining two agencies and got lots of work through them, and I worked throughout the western suburbs for a number of years. But every school I went to, you know, it was still the same thing. There was just a silence when it comes to queer teachers and our representation in the workplace. Now, there is an acceptance of queer kids and in recent years, obviously, with changing uh, roles uh, in terms of what's happened overseas and changes in legislation, especially the Marriage Act, there has been a kind of like a shift towards understanding diversity. But there still is an unspoken language about queer teachers and where they fit in the classrooms. And are they safe? Safety, I think, is a is an excellent word, an excellent segue, because of course uh, your studies are very much focused, and your your passion is very much focused about creating safe space for gender diverse students and teachers in the education system. How do we do that, considering those huge barriers? Is it essentially about inclusion? Look, I think it's more than just inclusion. Inclusion is just a word. You know, it comes back to practice. Um, Look, I'm still struggling in, in, in my journey, in my research journey, because I'm still, I will have teachers that will talk to me, but they will not, they, they're too scared to come out <laughs> and, and in their schools to say, you know, yes, I'm a non-binary teacher or yes, I'm a trans-identified teacher or I'm a, I'm a queer uh, teacher. There is that kind of pressure to still remain in closets. And the reason why I bring it back to that level is that if teachers still feel scared or not safe to come out in school spaces, then how do we expect our kids that we're teaching to come out and feel resilient and proud of who they are? And that's where I'm finding why I'm kind of looking at stuff and I've been doing a lot of interviewing with uh, parents of kids who've, who've got trans-identified children and they're saying that, you know, if only we could have a teacher or someone at the school that was like them, that they can have a role model, that they can, you know, identify with, that can make that connection, it would make such a change. But because there is this kind of unspoken language... <laughs> 
that you have to look a certain way to be a teacher in our schools and behave a certain way. I cannot, this is a struggle I'm seeing, you know, that we, yes, we are making headways because we've now got, you know, I could go and explain to you, we've got learning plans that we can do, we've got legislation that protects children, but, you know, it's still happening in the schoolyards, you know, kids are still being isolated. So we were looking at spaces in the playgrounds. A lot of kids who are, who identify as transgender struggle in their spaces because they want to play like with the other kids. But what happens is when those kids tell their parents what's going on, the, some of the parents sort of say, do not play with that child. I don't want you to play with them. There's something wrong with them. So you've got that kind of happening from the parental influence. So that isolation becomes there. But we don't talk about this much in research. You know, it's like that hidden world where 25 years ago, students with disabilities, you know, research focused about what's going on in the classroom. Yes, we've got, we've got resources. I have control as a teacher in the classroom. But when it's outside in the playground, there is no control. Rick, how effective has safe schools been? What are your thoughts on that? Sounds like there's some real shortfalls that need filling. Yeah, look, it has been effective. It has sort of brought out the highlight, the the higher levels of marginalisation and self-harm that our queer students face and voice. And I think that's another important thing to consider, the voices, whose voices are being heard, because there is one thing, I think, to come out as queer in the binary world, you know, I, yeah, I'm a gay man, I'm a gay, I'm a gay woman, but to come out as a trans person is a very complex thing for for children because it's always tapered with sexuality, but it's not, you know, it's a different sort of thing. And safe schools, in some ways, you know, you, you have programs, but the programs themselves do not address trans health for children and young people or the health for gay and lesbian children. It's very whitewashed if I want to call it that, that they'll only give certain amounts of information because of the pressures from a lot of family and even the own biases of other teachers who think that if we provide this information, somehow kids are going to convert or they're going to experiment and become, you know, queer. They're going to become trans. You know, we're going to create this, this whole world of queer children. And that's really sad because that's just, that's not how it works. It's just not how identity formation, you know, comes to play. So, yes, Safe Schools has sort of um, in one way helped it, but I'm finding that there are cracks in Safe Schools policies and it's through the practice and it's through the silencing of trans children's experiences of themselves, you know, their health, how do they manage their well-being and health? It's not discussed. They don't have anything. All they have 
are just if they're allowed to have access to the internet. And that's how a lot of kids I've spoken to have found that. And, you know, and, and thank God if they've got supportive parents who would understand. But some of the kids who don't have supportive family, they're in a struggle bind. How do they access that information that affirms who they are? And that's sort of where I sit. You know, I need to be, I need to do as much as I can so that I can, if I can stop one child from suicide, then I feel I've accomplished something. Vic, how damaging has the religious discrimination legislation debate been, do you think, on the progression of inclusion and safety and all those really important, necessary things that you talked about? How, how damaging has this debate been? Look, I think it's really brought out in the community um, some of the, the people who've really kind of hidden behind religious privilege to kind of really cloak their own agenda, which is to demonise, you know, trans children and queer children and students um, in schools because a school can now say that they don't want to hire me. If I was hired in a Catholic school, um, I could be basically sacked (laughs) for the way I look and the way I represent because they can say I do not fit into their values, you know, their values of, of what they confer as normal, which is, uh, you know, a relationship between a male and a female. That kind of prevalence idea is still, you know, filtered all around. You know, that religious bill kind of fuels um, bullying because it kind of gives validity to kids in school grounds, you know, in lunchtime and uh, recess breaks and in the sports areas of schools, which we don't tend to talk about in research much, that this is what takes place as well. Other kids will say, oh, you know, you shouldn't be here. You know, queer people like you, you know, you know, we don't want you, you know, and, you know, and they can use that religious bill as a legitimate platform to say, can't you see, even the government wants to get, you know, your people out. And this just infuriates me because I'm trying to kind of dispel myths, but I'm constantly working you know, in a field where heteronormative practices always seem to dominate the discourse over all we want to be is just to live and live and and let us live, be our authentic selves. We're always being challenged by it. And, you know, just those comments raised by that, uh, I won't even mention the name of the person, but the person on MasterChef, you know, who'd made comments about, you know, what gay people should be all put into an island. You know, it's those kind of attitudes that we allow to filter the media, you know, and no one kind of questions it. Like no one says, you can't say that, you know, because, you know, children, especially young children, they're like sponges when it comes to media. You know, if you identify on the, you know, gender diverse spectrum, you're looking for anything you can on the media, you know, if you don't have access to, say, the computer at home. So if you hear things like that, it just reinforces negative stereotypes, you know, and makes your self-esteem and self-worth diminish. So, you know, I'm really passionate about making a change 
And, you know, I am going to be, even though I have some health issues, I will start, I will fight to my last breath to stop this religious discrimination bill because all it will do is will just set everything back. It will allow the powers to be to put into place curriculums which are exclusively heterosexual and, again, deny our children who identify as gender diverse a space, you know, of acceptance in schools. Absolutely. Rick, thank you so much for talking to me today on 3CR. Oh, it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. And thank you, James. And let's hope that the discrimination bill can just be, you know, imploded (laughs) away. 3CR. And that was Safe Spaces in Schools advocate, Rick Spencer.
band. That was Susie and the Banshees with Fear of the Unknown. You're listening to 3CR Radio. Well, the Melbourne Queer Film Festival had to shut down shortly after its opening night in March. And this week I spoke to its program director, Spiro Economopoulos. Well, it's uh, been a, a very trying journey and a very difficult one, obviously. Um, the festival, which was celebrating its uh, 30th anniversary this year, which was a bit of a milestone for MPFF, had to sadly postpone uh, four days into the festival due to the um, developing COVID nineteen pandemic. So it was pretty, it was pretty crushing for the festival and and for our community at large, who um, who really love the festival. Um, and so it's been a Initially, very difficult. I think also, you know, obviously as a festival, you spend a whole year working on, um, you know, a program and to see it kind of cut down like that was, uh, was hard at first. But, uh, since then, you know, like everyone around the world, we've all been sort of regrouping and mobilizing and trying to work out next steps and trying to sort of work out uh, what it means to be a festival in this current climate. So it's, there's been a lot of sort of, you know, learnings and sort of trials and, uh, you know, some positive things have come out of it as well. But, um, yeah, it's been tricky. What's the impact been on the festival financially? Well, the, yeah, look, the impact was, was hard as well. Obviously, uh, you know, we're, not, we're, you know, a not-for-profit organisation. You know, we, you know, our finances are really sort of reliant on our box office um, and ticket sales, so that that was very hard. Uh, I'm very fortunate for us. We have an incredible community that uh, is very supportive of the festival, and uh, we uh, saw you know really overwhelming response. Where a lot of people, you know, obviously, you know, rather than get refunds, for example, would ask ask for you know credits or you know just um, you know consider the the refund a cash donation back to the festival. So that's been a you know a really kind of heartening thing for us um, uh, to see that support. But you know we uh, you know we need to kind of now find sort of different ways to bring the festival back up to you know what what it was financially. And what are some of the strategies you're considering? Well, look, you know, I think you know for us uh, we are definitely looking at you know relaunching the festival uh, particularly you know we're exploring other options like you know online offerings for example and uh, also you know optimistically looking at um, our mini festival which we debuted last year in October and re bringing that back in again to um the into the year as in the cinemas hopefully but also you know maybe as a bit of a hybrid and i think that's one of the things that we're all kind of exploring and not just mqfr from other festivals as well where you know festivals are looking at other models that are you know potentially partly in the cinema partly online you know maybe maybe the driving you know like it's it, we're all kind of looking at all these kind of different ways at the moment and you know all you know in my mind, this is all temporary and, uh, you know, hopefully things will get back to what they were like very soon. I'm, I'm missing being in the cinema terribly. So um, I really hope that we can kind of find uh, some really good solutions in the time being. The drive-in option sounds exciting. Uh, are there any drive-ins that are still operational in Melbourne? There are. And, in fact, uh, we actually started do, doing drive-in screenings last year. Um, MQFF, uh, as part of our midsummer offerings, uh, screened uh, Greece last year. And this year we did the Rocky Horror Picture Show 
And uh, those driving screenings have been phenomenal, like so popular, and the response has been great. So we we have actually, you know, we kind of jumped on the driving bandwagon even well before COVID hit, and it's definitely something we would kind of look into doing again. Coburg Driving here in Melbourne is sort of up and running and uh, is, again, sort of screening films from what I can see. And, in fact, the driving phenomena is becoming a huge thing all around the world again now, interesting, well, not surprisingly enough, considering what's going on but um i think it wouldn't surprise me if we saw more of those kind of screenings uh pop up here actually and i mean i guess there are possibilities for drive-in screenings in regional victoria i imagine there's some old drive-ins there that haven't closed yeah i I hope so exactly i think you know regional communities would sort of definitely look into exploring that and i think uh the portability of you know doing something outdoors and, you know, being safe as well is really kind of a, you know, it it could be a really great sort of fix to this at the moment. I know it's a bad time to ask you this with our parts of Melbourne about to go into severe lockdowns, but you must be anticipating that cinemas won't be opened in Melbourne in October, say, for example? Well, actually, they are opening. In fact, I got an email today from Hoyts. So Hoyts uh, have announced they're opening uh, on Thursday and Village is opening up this week as well. The Nova Cinemas just opened up. So the cinemas are opening here, which is promising. I guess it's going to be an, an experiment to see how that sort of plays out. And obviously all these venues are opening with strict social distancing practices in play. Uh, I think for us now, it's going to be about a, you know, a watch and see how audiences respond to it and whether people are coming back to the cinema, how comfortable they feel. I think in particularly our queer community, um, there are sort of, you know, health concerns for people that have, you know, compromised um, immune systems and, you know, what that could potentially mean when you throw COVID in the mix. But more importantly, MQFF is a festival that uh, relies on community and uh, festival is successful because it's about people kind of coming together in a space and particularly this queer community. So I think, uh, you know, we need to sort of find ways to make that happen again. You did show some of your films online after the cinema festival closed. Uh, how'd that go? Oh, no, we, do, we, we did a couple of watch parties, which was really fun. Uh, we also did a competition called Couch Critic, which was a, a really great opportunity to reach out to some of our audience members and kind of check in to see what they're watching. And some people submitted some fantastic and really creative videos, actually. So that was a really fun thing to do. And we are now... Uh, exploring doing a online offering very soon um, that will be kind of hopefully rolling out within the next month uh, of some of the titles that we had planned to screen in March but couldn't get to it. So that's that's in train at the moment. Fantastic. Tell us about some of those titles. Well, I can't just yet because we haven't announced them officially, but uh, so I'll have to kind of stay mum for the moment. But, you know, a good clue is that uh, it would have been a lot of stuff that we didn't get to screen in March. So if you're kind of across the program at all and, uh, you know, you know what didn't didn't screen, you'll, you'll sort of begin to get a fair idea what might be playing. That must be great news to lovers of documentaries because, of course, the festival had a great lineup of them. It had a fantastic lineup of docos, and uh, I think uh, it's been uh, hopefully, you know, we can, uh, yeah, definitely get some docos in there as well. I think the documentary programming strand of the festival is always really strong and, uh, I, yeah, and, and really diverse, actually. So, um, yeah. We spoke in March. Of course, it was the 30th festival. Uh, you were incredibly excited. It was like, you know, your baby was about to take its first breath. <laughs> 
what was the reaction for you emotionally when when everything kind of went down the tube somewhat? Um, I think it was a little bit of shock, to be honest. Uh, obviously, things were brewing, you know, as the festival was kind of leading up. So there was that kind of concern in the back of your mind. But I think when you're in that space, you're your focus is just to kind of get that festival up and running and you're in that kind of bubble, I suppose. So when it all shut down, uh, I mean, I just went into full lockdown. And to be honest with you, I think that kind of helped a little bit in a way for me sort of emotionally because it just gave me the opportunity to separate myself a little bit, regroup, uh, sort of put it all in context because, you know, it wasn't just the festival, it was the whole world kind of you know, sort of sliding into this kind of lockdown space and kind of realising that we were all in this together was, uh, I guess, a bit of comfort as well and um, that kind of helped a little bit. Uh, but it was, yeah, it was a bit rough in the beginning and I think I just kind of decided just to kind of, you know, just kind of take care of myself a little bit so I can get ready for the next stage. You must have been incredibly busy during that stage as well, because of course there was there must have been planning for the for the parties online that you were having, and also just that contingency work, the what ifs. Yeah, look, to be honest with you, it was a really busy period for me. I mean, uh, generally for myself, this time of year, like especially after the festival, April May, is a little bit of a quiet time. It's a bit of a wind down part. It's you know, it's it's sort of stock taking and you know reporting and suddenly uh it just kind of amped up and we were, you know, trying to I guess pick up the pieces a little bit of the, you know, postponed festival and see what that meant and reach out to the filmmakers and distributors. There was a lot of work happening in the background there. And also beginning to kind of plan for um, you know, what an online world for MQFF would look like, um, engagements, you know, with the community. And also on top of that, you know, planning for an in-cinema festival coming up later in the year, the festival next year. Um, it's been kind of non-stop and obviously all also, uh, you know, about the organize, you know, having to organize our organization sort of moving to their home environments because, you know, we're all working from home at the moment, obviously. And that kind of took a little bit of work, um, in terms of getting that all space ready to go and for us to be able to operate properly. You're listening to an interview with Spiro Economopoulos from the Melbourne Queer Film Festival on 3CRs in your face. I feel very fortunate to be in, uh, you know, an arts-based uh, job and to have a role at the moment is incredibly, I feel incredibly lucky about that. And um, it's been amazing that we've all been able to kind of uh, continue working actually. And uh, I think, yeah, you know, I feel I feel very fortunate about that. And it's been fairly easy uh moving uh, to working from home and kind of operating in that way. I think it's particularly in the nature of my job, a lot of it is kind of uh, it, it wasn't a difficult to transition, you know. I mean, I miss the office environment. I miss kind of that collaboration that you get from, you know, other organisations that you're working with um, in the physical space. But uh, we've all sort of found ways to adapt and, and kind of move forward, which is good. So what are some of those ways that you found to adapt? 
Well, we have uh, regular team catch-ups via, you know, Zoom, for example, and kind of online sort of uh, video catch-ups through Facebook. And I think actually what's interesting is that we're actually catching up more and, you know, kind of touching base more than we might have when we were just all, you know, in the office together kind of doing our own thing. So I think it's kept us all, uh, you know, connected and I guess up to speed about what we're all doing. Um, that's that's been kind of the biggest change, really, and just and just kind of making sure that we have all the tools available to us to be able to kind of work from home and, and continue continue that work. I've I've kind of uh, found that I've been reaching out a lot more to you know, many of our filmmakers, sales agents, distributors overseas, and touching base with them in you know in more meaningful ways than I ever had before because you know obviously. The big change for me is that there's no festivals going on and, you know, a big chunk of my role and work is, you know, getting a bit of a, you know, temperature check, let's just say, of, you know, what what films are great in other festivals, what's playing and, you know, what's hot and what's worth chasing and none of that is there. So I'm kind of working a little bit without a roadmap. Yeah, the film industry in the US and, and in Europe, they must have been decimated. They were and not and I think that was the thing that I – I guess as it began to sort of roll out after March, I began to sort of realise the massive impact of it because it wasn't, you know, the festival, uh, there's a microcosm of people that work around the festival that's supported in different ways, whether it's, you know, our you know, program distributors or the the sales agents and filmmakers that, you know, all these people were you know, very quickly, you know, their livelihoods were just completely, they just completely disappeared. And so you kind of realise that the festival actually sort of houses this kind of network of people that suddenly were crushed. And that was a, a really difficult, difficult thing to see, you know, sort of play out actually in real time. What are your sources telling you about how the Australian film industry is coping? Um, it's actually coping all right. I mean, it's been really interesting to, you know, jump on some panels and have some conversations and people are beginning to get back to work again. I think the nature of production means that you can be in pre-production or post-production and, you know, fairly contain yourself in terms of the physical space that you inhabit. I think what would be interesting is that we might see, you know, a big investment in things like animation, for example, which is, you know, like a creative field where you can kind of work on it sort of in semi-isolation if you need to. And I think, uh, you know, creatives have found ways to adapt and you know, keep themselves busy because I think what's happening to people are locked down and, you know, they, they're kind of working on those projects that they didn't have time to work on and develop. And I think um, that's given people a little bit a little bit of kind of time to do this. Uh, I mean, if anything, I would really like to see more kind of government support who I feel have been pretty vague and lacking in terms of what kind of support they can offer arts organisation and artists and filmmakers, et cetera. I just think that's been pretty poor. How has the state government been in relation to supporting the Melbourne Queer Film Festival? I know they gave money uh, that was a non-competitive kind of, you know, grant to to Joy to do to do their their online show, uh, Joy TV, if you like. Yeah. Uh, have they stepped up for the Melbourne Queer Film Festival in any yeah, way? Yeah, they have. Look, you know, there's like I said, there's definitely grants out out there that we have kind of um, sort of put in submissions of interest for, and that kind of support is is kind of there to kind of reach out to. And they've, you know, a few sort of 
government, sort of state government organisations have obviously reached out and, and offered help in any way they could in terms of promoting online events if we need to and offering, you know, you know, I guess expressions of interest for any kind of new grants that are coming up, you know. So I think that's sort of been okay. I'm kind of more curious about it on a sort of federal level, like what that's going to look like because I think, you know, obviously the, the government announced that $250 million sort of bailout package for the arts that seemed like it was very well focused on, you know, tradies within the arts. There really hasn't been a conversation about what what it means for jobbing actors, for example, or, you know, key crew on film sets that kind of, you know, it's a bit of a gig economy, unfortunately, and they really rely on these kind of, you know, their financial livelihood sort of being supported by that. And I don't think there's been a great sort of, I guess, support of that in, in a way. You mentioned animation before. Uh, it sounds like there's a, an animation burst happening in Australia. Would that be fair to say? Could we be expecting to see in 2021 a Melbourne Queer Film Festival with um, much more of a focus on animation? You could do. I mean, that could be one of the things that might come out of this. I think uh, I, from what I gather, it looks like uh, a lot of these, uh, you know, state you know funded film bodies are looking at animation as a way to kind of move forward and invest in so you never know yeah Three and that was spiro economopolis from the melbourne queer film festival
Duran Duran. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. And thanks heaps to our guests, Rick Spencer and Spiro Economopoulos for chatting with me on this week's show. Thanks heaps too to all those people who donated to 3CR for our June online appeal. Just awesome stuff. It's really appreciated. I'm out of here, Jacob's up next with a Friday raid. Taking us out is The Cure with Fascination Street. I'll catch you next week on In Your Face.